This presentation was produced under U.S. Department of Education contract number EDESE14D0008 with Synergy Enterprises Incorporated. The views expressed herein do not necessarily represent the positions or policies of the U.S. Department of Education. No official endorsement by the U.S. Department of Education of any product, commodity, service, methodology, technique, or enterprise mentioned here is intended or should be inferred. Welcome to Why for Wise Voices from the Field podcast. I'm Julie, a member of the Technical Assistance Team under the Department of Education's Nita M. Lowy 21st Century Community Learning Centers program. Today, I'm joined by Angelica Robinson, a higher education professional. Along with her team from Toolmaker Productions, Angelica gave an impactful session at the 21st CCLC Summer Symposium in 2022. So we invited her to come answer some of our questions about how staff in out-of-school time can benefit from professional training that helps them unpack their self-identity with an end goal of creating identity-safe spaces for their students. Thank you so much for being here today, Angelica. Hello, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. It's our pleasure, especially with that great energy you brought today. Can you start by telling us a little about yourself and your work? Your master's candidate, for example, is your academic work closely related to your work in professional learning? Yes, I've worked professionally in higher education for about 14 years now. And I remember early in my career as a new professional, I worked at a school where little attention was given to the importance of diversity education. And there certainly was no training for the campus community in the subject matter. So immediately recognizing the need for this education, I requested to lead an introductory presentation at New Student Orientation on the topic of diversity. And this is when I developed the Our Society Ourselves workshop. Following the success of this presentation, I requested and later was granted permission to teach an elective course where students and I could further delve into the subject matter, talking about social norms and looking more deeply into identity construction. I think I'd like to take that class. Does it look the same today as when you started? While it has undergone new iterations as times have changed and my knowledge of the subject matter has increased, the Our Society Ourselves workshop still holds today the same essence and is presented with the same intentionality as it was the very first time I shared it. That is, that we can build a greater degree of empathy for one another by understanding how we make sense of ourselves, especially in relation to others, and recognize the responsibility that we have to one another as citizens of Earth to honor, respect, acknowledge, value, and celebrate who we are as people. Empathy, I believe, is what enables us to value others and understand that despite the brilliant, beautiful ways we may be different, we can always find similarities with one another and our shared humanity. What a beautiful and important concept. And this relates to your further studies how, Angelica? I'm currently working toward earning a Master of Science degree in higher education at California State University, Fullerton in Southern California. This degree is intricately tied to my work in student affairs. The program takes a theory to practice approach in shaping our understanding of the historical systems and structures of higher education that inform the work that we do. It also empowers us as students to approach our understanding of our roles in higher education through a justice, equity, inclusion, access, and diversity lens. Well, that certainly seems quite pertinent. So Angelica, back to your workshop and trainings. I'll share with our listeners that the images you shared during your presentation at the 2022 Summer Symposium elicited emotional and sometimes visceral reactions from participants. Can you share a little about that exercise, the kinds of images you selected, and what the main goal of your opening exercise on self-identity is? 
I'm very intentional to select images that are timely, relevant, and recognizable to audience members. Sometimes the images are fairly simple, such as photos of mainstream musicians or symbols that are commonly recognizable. This really gets people thinking and talking, sometimes laughing, and in effect, it loosens everybody up. And it makes people feel a little more comfortable to talk and engage in a discussion because we start with material and subject matter that's relatable. Typically, these images of well-known concepts are people, sometimes in stark contrast with an opposing image in a split screen. They challenge participants to think about and voice their perceptions and even biases. I really like this exercise because I think it's a fun way to approach and confront the topic at hand in a manner that's accessible and where everyone can effectively contribute. I think it's a very real possibility that some people may immediately feel checked out when they're invited or even required to attend a workshop that in any way addresses the topic of diversity. Yeah, I can see that. While many people may look forward to discussions around the topic of diversity, it's understandable that others may feel intimidated by it or even underinformed on the subject matter. Some people may even feel that the topic doesn't apply to them and therefore it's of little value. However, this exercise levels the playing field among all audience members, so to speak, because everybody has a reaction of some kind to each image when it's presented before them. That did seem universal. In all the years that I presented this workshop, I have never had anyone express that they didn't have any responses to any of the images. Whether or not somebody wishes to speak out loud, this is an activity wherein everybody can and does participate. That was definitely my observation. Also, since the presentation is titled Our Society, Ourselves, we open with a conversation that invites people to actually look inward while simultaneously examining societal structures and norms that influence how we interpret and make sense of other people, external stimuli, and the world at large. I think this provides a greater ease of transition for escalating the conversation to more challenging areas surrounding diversity, such as addressing the impacts of racism, different forms of discrimination, and the power to shift paradigms. Yes, that was masterfully done, but please go on. This exercise is helpful also because the purpose of it is to illustrate that we do react to images and stimuli. Sometimes these responses take the form of an opinion or an assumption. Sometimes there may even be a question or confusion. But nonetheless, there is a response. And in the same way that we all respond to the images, we also engage in this process when presented with new information and even when we see other people in life. We examine this phenomenon a little more closely in the very next portion of the presentation. Let's talk a little bit more about those reactions. You made a compelling argument for the science behind those snap emotional responses. Can you please explain to our audience how it's so universal that just about all of us are wired a certain way, whether or not we're completely comfortable admitting it. I think one of the main takeaways from this part of the presentation is that it becomes undeniable almost immediately following the initial discussion of the images that yes, we do in fact make an impression of the images, people, and other stimuli when presented with them. And you're absolutely correct that it can often be difficult or even uncomfortable to admit this fact. But isn't this a great unifier? It's something that we all have in common because we've been socialized to make sense of our environment and by proxy, where and how we ourselves fit into the given environment. We have been socialized and taught to categorize information in order to make sense of it and know best how to navigate the world. And this is a critical component of learning. Yes, of course. This is why I make a point to acknowledge that it is not inherently wrong to form an impression upon seeing an image or another person because it's practically unavoidable. We are taught through different forms of media, our own experiences, from our parents, and other influences how to perform these reflective processes, and these understandings shape our perspectives, our expectations, and our behaviors. 
You know, Angelica, I'm going to make a quick plug for the Why for Why course on child and adolescent development for anyone who's more interested in theories on how children learn. But to stay on topic, in this work of exploring identity, I get the sense that an important step to living harmoniously with one another is to have some patience about snap judgments that may or may not stay with a person beyond a few moments when they see someone different from themselves. Is that fair to say? Yeah, this is a fair point, and I think you hit the nail on the head. I often receive the response from audience members when I ask them if it's wrong that we make these snap judgments, that the snap judgment itself is not so much problematic as whether or not we act on the judgment, and if so, how we act and respond. And I would agree with the statement that we formulate an idea or even a belief about someone immediately upon direct or indirect interaction with them is inevitable. But we first need to be mindful that this happens so that we can be aware of it and recognize when and that it does happen. But how we move forward with respect to the initial impression we develop is where we can sometimes get into trouble. Yeah, We should remain flexible when we develop opinions about others because, as we all know, first impressions may not always be entirely correct. Well, exactly. Especially if that impression has more to do with what's in our own head and not the stranger before us. Angelica, let's dive a little deeper into the psychology of different. In your session, you brought up work by the French philosopher Jacques Derrida. Tell us about Derrida and how his ideas can help us unpack this idea of different. Yeah, and at the risk of oversimplifying his philosophy, Derrida's idea essentially is that in the context of shared meaning and understanding and communication, there are some concepts that can only be understood in relation to their direct opposites. Dictionary.com defines binary as relating to, composed of, or involving two things. So for example, when we use the term non-binary, this is referring to a rejection of falling into one of two rigid concepts that are directly related to one another. Makes sense. Similarly, Derrida communicates that some ideas are binary in nature, such that the understanding of one idea is contingent on the understanding of its binary opposite. Some examples are terms like hot and cold, happy or sad, tall and short. In essence, if I communicate, for example, that I'm happy, then the person or persons to whom I'm speaking will understand that I am not not happy. In this example, not happy can be interpreted or understood as sad or any equivalent synonym of the word sad. Therefore, if I'm happy, then I'm not sad because if I was sad, I would not be happy. Do you see how correctly understanding the last statement requires a clear comprehension of the definitions of the words happy and sad in order for the sentence to make sense? I'm a little dizzy now, but yes. It's like you can't really have one without the other. The only way to capture the essence of what it means to be happy is to weigh it against what it means to know what sadness is. Their definitions depend on one another. So let's talk about what these binaries and opposites mean in identity. So applying this idea to the concept of identity, I argue, according to Derrida's theory, that there's a direct relationship between how other people view, define, or otherwise make sense of our identity and the process we engage in to commit to and make sense of our own identities. As we grow up, a lot of our identities are determined for us. We're a daughter, we're a son, we're a sister, a brother, a student, we're a teacher, we're smart, we're cute, we're funny, etc. We're given labels that are associated with categories and related meanings. Furthermore, our identities are also shaped and defined according to the ways we're similar to others and the ways in which we differ from other people. And as we mature, we learn that we can evaluate these assigned identities and weigh them against what we believe and feel most closely aligns with our true sense of self. 
And it's for this reason that the ability to categorize information, even as it pertains to a person's identifiers or identity, can be an insightful tool that we employ that ultimately enables us to understand who we are in relation to others and vice versa. Okay, yeah, putting ourselves in context with others. We need to be cautious, though, about how we use this tool. Although it's beneficial in helping us to make sense of ourselves, this tool shouldn't be used to narrowly define people according to very limited and normative ways of being. We need to be very careful not to dictate to others who they must be, but instead allow them the flexibility to determine their own identities and acknowledge those identities with the same degree of respect that we wish for people to demonstrate toward us. This is a great way of thinking positively about identity, and it seems more authentic than previous efforts at diversity and inclusion that promoted colorblindness, for example. Instead, we're acknowledging and celebrating all that makes us who we are and who others are. What would you say are next steps in identity work that can help our out-of-school time practitioners begin to really cultivate an identity-safe space through their own exploration of identity? I think the next best steps are continued learning, having conversations, and continually engaging with other people. I also think that we should intentionally challenge our own assumptions and remain mindful of the biases that we hold. Because identity is such a fluid concept and people are always changing, developing, and growing, it's important to give people the time and space to come into their own identities. Identity is a very personal thing to each individual. Today, people want to live their lives in a very authentic way and be true to who they are. True celebration of diversity includes recognizing and acknowledging that, yes, there are ways in which we differ from one another, but that's okay. Rather than operating according to the very flawed ideology that we should, quote unquote, not see color, I advocate instead that we absolutely should see color in every other aspect of identity that represents people's real lived experiences. And we should engage with people as often as possible. Talk to people. And you don't have to be afraid to acknowledge what you don't know, but just be sincere in your desire to learn more and don't be quick to assume. That's really important. Seek meaningful dialogue and connection with other people. Because after all, if you don't see color, but you're also not legitimately colorblind, then how can it even be possible for you to celebrate racial diversity? It's not possible to celebrate something that you're deliberately choosing to ignore. Oh my gosh, yes. The idea that one doesn't see color in the context of a person's race and all that's associated with race is actually a microaggression that's rooted in performative rhetoric and does more harm than good. I agree with you about that. So, solutions. I believe that in teaching and helping others to understand, value, and gain buy-in to the idea of diversity appreciation, you have to make it very personal and relevant to them. I've been challenged at some of my workshops in the past by many people who quite vocally and emphatically believe that a workshop like Our Society Ourselves is irrelevant to them because they're, quote, not racist. They wholeheartedly believe that being present at a diversity training was not only unnecessary, but was in fact offensive to them as it seemingly assumed or insinuated somehow that they were racist. Oh, that's hard. As I mentioned before, the opening exercise where we talk about how naturally we can immediately respond to images and therefore to other people demonstrates that while we may not be racist, we certainly all carry biases. It's important to acknowledge these biases and to be continually aware of how they're manifested in human ideology and behavior. Good old-fashioned honesty, really. Tell our listeners how these trainings wrap up. The closing exercise is a simple one that I believe illustrates and personalizes the impact of racism and discrimination. Everyone is a complex individual, and most people do not want to be wholly and completely defined solely based on just one aspect of their identity. Something I think is interesting is that in this last exercise, participants are asked to choose for themselves which one area of their identity they would elect to be defined by if given the choice. 
But in instances of racism or discrimination, how you're defined, and that is how people choose to perceive you through a racist and or discriminatory lens, and how they treat you as a result is usually according to an aspect of your identity of their choosing, not of your choosing. The aspect of your identity that is most salient to you may not even be acknowledged when somebody discriminates against you on the basis of another aspect of your identity. Wow, yep. Just like in the exercise where I ask participants to think about the saliency or priority of the areas of their identity and then slowly erase them until all of who they are is encompassed only by one aspect of their identity, I explain that the takeaway is that when someone discriminates against another person, what the discriminator does, in effect, is crosses out, ignores, disregards, or otherwise overlooks all of what makes a person who they are in favor of choosing to see the recipient of the discrimination through a singular lens. This activity is a potent reminder of the frustration and the pain that's felt when we're discriminated against or wrongfully judged, and it allows us to feel the weight of enacting this behavior toward others. Well, Angelica, I hope our out-of-school time programs seek professional development around identity like what you offer Because I wholeheartedly agree that understanding others, including our students, begins with understanding ourselves a little better. So any final words of wisdom, especially for program leaders interested in training staff to make the out-of-school environment truly identity safe? Yes, I'd like to say thank you so much again for having me today. This was so much fun, and I look forward to continuing this conversation. I also want to say thank you to all of my colleagues and peers, all of us that do this very important work advocating for justice, equity, access, inclusion, and diversity. We know it's certainly not easy, but it's absolutely worth all of our learning, teaching, and efforts because we work today in hopes of making a better tomorrow. As I say in the workshop, social constructs and paradigms are created by people, so collectively, we, the people, can be empowered to change these paradigms and shift narratives for the better. Thank you. Yes, for a better future for our students and for ourselves. Thank you, Angelica, for taking your valuable time to speak with us today. Our listeners can look for links in the transcript of this podcast to view the archived Summer Symposium presentation, Our Society, Ourselves, Roots of Tension Talkback. And let me just thank you, listeners, for making Y4Y your partner in professional development.